Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 68 for the second half of March 2013. Today I'm bringing you an interview with Expat, my first repeat interviewee to talk about several of the more conspiratorial claims of Richard C. Hoagland. Expat, a pseudonym, is an author and former TV documentary producer. He was a science producer of the BBC's television coverage of the Apollo moon landings, and he went on to write and produce some 20 science documentaries, including four major reports on the U.S. and Russian space programs. He has met and interviewed the majority of the key figures from the Apollo-era NASA program, including managers, scientists, engineers, and astronauts. Expat was my first guest on this podcast for episode 10, back on November 10th, 2011, where he talked about some of Mike Barra's more interesting ideas. This episode, he's back to talk about some of the more political and technological conspiracies of Richard Hoagland. So welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Stuart. Let's get right into it. Uh, There are several often repeated claims made by Richard Hoagland regarding conspiracies related to NASA and the space program in general. I'd like to cover some of those in the beginning before getting into a few other questions. The first claim that I'd like to discuss is the one that NASA originated and was formed as part of the U.S. Department of Defense. What's the basis for this, and is it real? I think Hoagland was just looking through the Space Act one day, as one does, and uh, he came across these magic words, the administration shall be considered a defense agency of the United States. And that is, uh, that is a part of Section 305, Clause I of the Space Act. When Hoagland wants to be really dishonest, he just leaves it at that. But uh, when he wants to be a little bit more honest, he gives the full wording of that clause, which is as follows. The administration shall be considered a defense agency of the United States for the purpose of Chapter 17, Title 35 of the U.S. Code. Now, what Hoagland never does is to figure out for the benefit of people listening to him what that all means. What is this Section 35? What is this Title 35? What is this Chapter 17? Well, the answer is fairly simple and fairly boring. Section 305 is all about what happens when employees of NASA make inventions. And it, uh, it starts off saying that whatever employees invent automatically becomes the property of the agency, and this is this is a fairly standard thing. I think many large corporations um, have similar regulations. They just don't want to feel that people on company time are going to be, have benefit from from uh, inventing and and patenting. Yeah, most universities also have that clause. There you go. Exactly. So, what is Title Thirty Five? Title Thirty Five is all about patenting. That's, that's the only topic that Title 35 discusses. And Chapter 17 is as follows. Whenever the publication or disclosure of an invention by the granting of a patent might, in the opinion of the Commissioner of Patents, be detrimental to the national security, 
he shall make the application for patent in which such invention is disclosed available for inspection to the Atomic Energy Commission, the Secretary of Defense, and the chief officer of any other department or agency of the government designated as a defense agency. Okay, so you see what's going on here. This is just legal language which is bringing NASA into line with other agencies to the extent that the the employees cannot cheat by going around the backs of their of their superiors and going straight to the patent office to patent an invention, because the um, the commissioner of patents is hereby authorized to sit on that patent application and keep it secret and check with all of those senior people. And I just did a little bit of extra research the other day, and I noticed that several other government departments are similarly designated as as defense agencies, among them the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. Well, those make more sense. Yes, but I don't think many people would consider the Department of Justice uh, an adjunct of the Department of Defense, which is what Hoagland is claiming that this, that this clause means that NASA is simply a, an adjunct of the Department of Defense. He wrote in, in Dark Mission, which always amuses me, that NASA was quietly established as, a, as an adjunct of the Department of Defense. I don't know what kind of noise he was expecting, but, <laughs> but there you go. So, so it's basically that it was established and they, they used copy and paste effectively to say, okay, so here's NASA, it's this agency, oh, and by the way, anything related to patents, we're copying the rules from the DOD and applying them to NASA. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so the second frequent claim by Hoagland is that NASA is run by Nazis at the top of the agency. Like, you know, the rank-and-file you know, Mohawk guy who became famous with the Curiosity landing on Mars probe. He doesn't, he's not a Nazi or anything, but it's these secret cabal people at the top. I always picture them like the X-Files sitting in a room smoking cigarettes. That they are Nazis. What's going on with this claim? <laughs> well, what's going on is it's false. Um, there haven't been any Nazis within NASA, to my knowledge, for many, many decades. What I think is more often said is that NASA was founded by Nazis. This, this is certainly what Mike Barra said in Ancient Aliens, Ancient Aliens, the NASA connection, which which he, he featured in. NASA was founded by by Nazis. Well, so then, what's well, going on with that? Is that true? No, it's not true. the the first um, The first administrator of NASA was uh, Keith Glennon. He was from North Dakota, a nice gentleman. I've never had any contact with uh, with any Nazis at all. Now, what then happened was that the so-called paperclip German German rocket scientists. Mm-hmm headed by Werner von Braun, uh, were, were brought to, were captured. They were, well, they surrendered, actually. They were brought to the USA, and they were housed at, for initially at Fort Bliss. This was in 1946. NASA was founded July 58, 
and it wasn't until July of 1962, years later, that von Braun and his paperclip companions were transferred to what then became the Marshall Space Flight Center in uh, Georgia. It was, it was known as the Redstone Arsenal, and it was really a military uh, base at that time. So there were, there were certainly, I've got to admit, there were, uh, there were Nazi influences in the development of the first, the Redstone and the Jupiter rockets. They were pretty much copies of the, uh, of the V2, the German V2 rocket. But uh, that's the extent of it. It was not it was not initially founded by Nazis, and the, the, the current NASA administrator, Charles Bolden, is a nice guy from South Carolina. He's no Nazi. So it seems like, at least publicly, uh, the only connection is that some of the early uh, researchers and some of the early technology was based on what we effectively, uh, for lack of a better term, captured from Nazi Germany but that otherwise to claim that Nazis are at the top is you know, effectively making the claim that it's the Illuminati and you can't really disprove anything like that, but at least there's no other evidence for it other than the statements that some people make. Yes, and as I say, it is certainly true that a family of rockets was derived uh, very very strongly from the V2. But on the other hand, I would point out that the Atlas rocket and the Titan rocket, both of which were initially military rockets but were also used to launch astronauts, uh, they, were, they were a different family of rockets altogether. As a matter of fact, the Atlas was primarily designed by a Belgian. Well, so... Uh, naming those rockets actually brings up the next question. Uh, you said Atlas, Titan, there's also rockets, uh, well, capsules such as the Orion capsule, uh, we had the Apollo landers, and these names sort of are reminiscent, or not sort of, they are reminiscent of basically ancient mythology deities. Uh, so, you know, the Titans uh, from ancient Greek mythology, you have Apollo from Greek mythology, but another frequent claim by Hoagland and Barra and others is that the people in charge at NASA are ardent numerologists who also worship not necessarily these other gods, but the Egyptian gods in particular. What's his evidence for this, and is it a valid claim? Well, the evidence is contained largely in a table which... Um he, which uh, Hoagland published on his uh, website called The Table of Coincidence. Okay. He, went through, he went through a number of um, co what he called coincidences, which actually amount, in my view, to uh, astrology, in which he pointed out that certain heavenly bodies, stars or comets, were at certain what he called ritual elevations as seen from important points during um, NASA launches and landings. I'm guessing that 33 degrees plays a uh, Well, a absolutely. Role. Absolutely. Um, that, it wasn't until the second edition of the book Dark Mission, 
that he actually stated in so many words what exactly his coincidence uh, criteria are. And they are as follows. Here are the five stars. Sirius, that is a, a representation of the god Isis. Alnitak, Alnilam, and Mintaka, the three belt stars of Orion. They stand in for the god Osiris. And Regulus stands in for the god Horus. Those five stars can be at any of five elevations, minus 33, minus 19.5, zero, plus 19.5, and plus 33. And they can be there at those elevations as seen from either the launch or landing site or from the control center, or in some cases, in desperately grasping for a coincidence, uh, he has, for example, uh, given a coincidence of the one landing of one Apollo program as seen from the landing site of another one. So note that he gives himself at least 50 chances of, of finding a coincidence at every launch or landing event. And if you allow cross-mission coincidences, it's pretty much infinite. In Dark Mission, he calls this this uh, uh, preoccupation of NASA fanatical and relentless. It almost sounds like it's actually his search for uh, any coincidence to be fanatical and relentless because it's it's like he's literally just finding anything that gets him his magic number and and he claims that it's this coincidence. It's almost like, actually it seems almost exactly like uh, what he does with Sidonia on Mars where he takes any of 50 different rock formations and takes the length to each one or the angles between each one or the sine or the cosine or the tangent of the angles and he has a list of about a dozen different numbers and if any of those numbers match any of those different angles then he calls that a coincidence that means that it's artificial so it almost sounds like it's the exact same thing here yes that's right well now just in the course of of doing my of writing my blog my blog is called the emoluments of mars um, i analyzed his table of coincidence in quite some detail and using those rules those five stars and those five elevations i looked through the entire history of the nasa space program starting with the ranger program and i found zero coincidences there. The Surveyor Program, likewise zero. The Mercury Program, zero. The Gemini Program, zero. And the Apollo Program, four. And how many did Richard claim? Well, that, that, that is his claim. He, he, he sprayed the table of coincidence with a number of pseudo-coincidences which were not correct. For example, he used the moon, the elevation of the moon as seen from the launch site of, uh, of a Mercury mission. But that's, that's not legitimate, according to what he himself wrote in the dark, in dark mission. So it sounds like even with the several 
different possibilities. He claims that there are lots of these coincidences, but when you actually go and do the math, there aren't. That's correct. Now, let's talk a bit about um, Farouk el-Baz. Okay, sounds Egyptian. Yes, very, um, a very distinguished geologist and selenologist. I've met him. He was uh, the secretary of the landing site selection committee for Apollo. Therefore, obviously, very influential indeed in selecting the landing sites for Apollo. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that he personally picked them, but let's say he was a very major voice in, in the selection process. He was known to the astronauts as King Farouk. They absolutely trusted him. He partly trained them in, um, in geology, too. But now, what Hoagland says is that the, 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 the sites and the times of all of the Apollo landings were picked by, by Farouk Elbaz, who is Egyptian by birth and whose father is a, a renowned Egyptologist, but you see, yes, he did indeed, he was indeed very influential in picking the sites, but not the times. The times of the landings were not in his gift at all. The times of the landings were controlled by the, first of all, the lighting conditions of, at, at, that, at that site, and secondly, the rotation of the earth what they wanted was for one of the 90-foot dishes to be pointing to the moon at the time of the landing. And those dishes were at Goldstone, Madrid, and Canberra. It was you know, 60 degrees apart around the globe. Mm-hmm. So that was what, can, what determined the selection of the landing times. There's nothing whatsoever to do with Farouk El-Baz. So it's like he was literally only part of the equation, and even that part is overstated by Richard and other people. Yes, there are, as you know, there were six successful Apollo landings. Of those six, Richard Richard Hoagland claims a coincidence for just two of them. He says for Apollo, at the Apollo 12 landing, the star Mintaka was at 19.5, and the Apollo 16 landing, Sirius, was at minus 33. I don't think that, uh, that that's, very, that's a very good, um, considering that he calls this fanatical and, re- and relentless, I don't think that's a very good strike rate, do you? Not particularly. Now, the other thing about Apollo 16, I can prove that nobody could have contrived that particular star alignment. And it's very simple. Of all of the Apollo landings, that one was the most off-nominal. For a start, the launch was delayed by a month. And then when they did get to the moon, immediately after the separation of the two spacecraft in lunar orbit, there was a malfunction of the service module main engine, and the, and the landing was... They, they very nearly cancelled the landing altogether, it, it, and it was, in fact, delayed. It did happen, but it happened six hours late. So there you have a delay of a month. 
-hmm. plus a delay of six hours, how on earth could anybody have contrived to to make it happen at a time when a specific star was at a specific angle? It, it just makes no sense. Well, uh, you know, that never stopped people like Richard. Um, I I remember a recent launch where. I, I unfortunately don't remember which one, where he basically said that these delays in the launch were planned so that these stars were properly aligned for uh, his particular brand of numerology. No, I, I think it's the other way around. I, I remember that too, but and it was um, STS-134, the launch, the second to last uh, shuttle launch. And by the way, we haven't talked at all about shuttle events, but when we can get back to that in a minute if you like. Okay. Um, that was the one that uh, conflicted with the royal wedding in England. And he said that it was, the, it was the planned launch time that mattered, not the actual launch time, I think. Oh. Well, that gives him even more shots at being correct. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Oh, that's getting back. That's that's an important point about the space shuttle events in this table of coincidence that I mentioned. Remember, there were 135 launches, mm -hmm. and sadly, too fewer landings. That's a lot of shuttle events. That that this this fanatical and relentless campaign by NASA could have uh, contrived. Well, in the table of coincidence, he has only one space shuttle event. And this was the launch of STS-88 in December 1998. And he says, this is a hit because Mars was at minus 3.33 degrees as seen from Phoenix. Oh. Well, that is disqualified on four separate grounds. First, Mars is not one of his five stars. Right. Minus 3.33 is not one of his magic elevations. Oh, but it's, it's close enough. <laughs> and Phoenix has nothing whatsoever to do with it. Also, uh, the, the fourth way in which it is self-disqualified is that the launch was uh, delayed by a day. So it was not the original planned launch time. So it seems that for this to be a fanatical obsession, NASA really needs to do its homework at, at being more OCD. That it really kind of sucks at it. They're not getting it. They're not getting it very right, are they? Apparently not. Uh, so let's move on to the fourth claim. Uh, one of the fourth frequent claims that um, you and I have both hear, heard a lot from Richard is that. Neil Armstrong, who unfortunately died last year, uh, and who is perhaps probably the most famous American astronaut, he made a speech once in the White House where he compared himself to a parrot. Richard makes the claim that Armstrong was trying to tell us that he was effectively just saying stuff that he was told to, and that he was hiding all of the stuff that he allegedly really saw on the moon, like all of the ancient alien technology and arcologies and archives and stuff. What's the context for this quote? Because I'm guessing that, like the first claim with NASA being a DOD thing, this is really just a quote mining exercise by Richard. So what is the actual context for this? And was that what Armstrong was really saying? 
Now, the context was the 25th anniversary of Apollo 11. It was, as you say, quite rightly, um, a speech given at the White House. Uh, there was that was 1994, if I did my math right? Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. An audience of general political dignitaries and also a whole lot of graduate students in engineering. So um, a lot of his speech was specifically addressed to people who were at the, uh, on the threshold of a career in engineering. Mm-hmm. Now, what he actually said was exactly the reverse of what Hoagland claims. He's actually said that he was not like a parrot. <clears throat> Here's the exact quote. Wilbur Wright once noted that the only bird that could talk was the parrot, and he didn't fly very well, so I'll be brief. Now, here's, here is one of the world's greatest ever pilots, who obviously is very talented at flying, but is also notoriously nervous as a public speaker. Is he comparing himself to a bird that, whose talents are the quite opposite? Of course not. He's saying that he's no good at public speaking. His talents are for flying, and therefore he will be brief. Okay. So how does Richard read into that? I mean, that sounds fairly straightforward and simple, that, okay, I'm not good at talking, I'm good at flying, so I don't really want to be here and talk, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll be short. And how does that... How does Richard read into that saying that Armstrong is basically saying that he he saw stuff that he can't talk about? I, I just think he's just not thinking. He he's just sees that word parrot. He focuses on that word and says, aha, aha, here we go. We've got some evidence here. It's on my side. He just, he just doesn't analyze that, that, that sentence. It's totally obvious. Okay, uh, well then let's go to what might be another quote mining exercise. Uh, the fifth claim that Richard makes a lot of the time is that, in fact, practically probably every other speaking engagement that I've, I've heard him speak at, is that the Brookings Report, you know, the Brookings Report, because the Brookings Institute has only put out one report, has been guiding NASA policy since the 1960s. And that the Brookings report means that NASA can never tell, we the people, if they ever found evidence of aliens, either current or extinct. What's actually going on here? Yes, the Brookings report was commissioned by NASA um, very soon after NASA itself was formed. It was, uh, the report was finally delivered to Congress in 1960. And it is true that it drew attention to the fact that when uh, civilizations meet each other, when there's a a very great difference between the the degree of of technological advancement between one and the other, things have generally not gone well for the lesser advanced civilization. They were thinking of things like explorers coming across uh, savages in the Brazilian jungle, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it is true that they warned that um, that there, there might be a danger in coming in, uh, uh, across extraterrestrial civilizations. But it is not true that they recommended that such information be kept quiet. 
what the uh, the report did do is it recommended that this um, question should be studied, but it did not itself make any particular recommendation on the, on the subject at all. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a direct quote. Two research areas can be recommended. First, continuing studies to determine the public's emotional and intellectual understanding and attitudes regarding the possibility and consequences of discovering intelligent extraterrestrial life. Such studies might help to provide programs for meeting and adjusting to the implications of such a discovery. Questions one might wish to answer by such studies would include how might such information, under what circumstances, be presented to or withheld from the public for what ends? So that they, they hinted that eventually a study might end up with a recommendation that that information should be withheld, but they gave exactly equal emphasis to presented to and withheld from. So that is emphatically not a recommendation. Right. Okay. Um, so then, basically with the Brookings report, he's, he's taking one part of it and ignoring the rest and saying that this means that NASA can never tell us what's really going on. Um, yeah. He also seems to claim that it's, it's almost NASA's Bible and that they everyone reads it keeps it under their pillow etc etc and uh you know i can say that i've gotten nasa funding for a few years now and i had never heard of the brookings report until i heard richard talking for whatever that's worth to people <laughs> well you know i'm perfectly sure that the postdoc students who analyze um, data from the lunar reconnaissance orbiter for example or the mars reconnaissance orbiter They've never heard of it either. This is a report that is 50 years old. It was never mandatory anyway. And Stephen Squires, a very distinguished JPL scientist, has said in so many words that if he discovered evidence of extraterrestrial life on Mars, he'd be delighted and would be the first to sing it from the, from the mountaintops. And for more context, Steve Squires is the principal investigator on the two Mars exploration rovers, one of which is still, what, 10 years later going strong. Yes, absolutely. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, go engineers, I guess. Uh, so shifting gears entirely, um, well, I guess not entirely, but shifting gears from these five major claims, um, for maybe the last decade... Richard has been going around the world making what he calls our key measurements of his torsion field, which is a manifestation of hyperdimensional physics. And uh, for podcast listeners, see episode 26 for more on hyperdimensional physics. To make these measurements, Richard uses an Accutron watch, which sounds like this high-tech gizmo. Uh, you've posted on your blog about these experiments, and we could probably easily do a whole hour episode just on these experiments. In the interest of time, uh, could you explain in maybe 10 minutes or so what he's claiming to do, what he's actually doing, and whether this backs up his claims of a torsion field as a manifestation of hyperdimensional physics? 
Well, what he's <coughs> claiming to do, and he's said this over and over and over again, is he claims that he is measuring the torsion field. He uses that term emphatically. I have measured it, he says. And science is nothing but numbers, he says. <laughs> science is nothing if it's not prediction, I think is what he says most of the time. Now, uh, there are, it, it's immensely problematic, this, because in the first place he has never said what units of measurement would be used to measure the field. He has never declared any actual measurement. All he's done is to point out that as a as a side effect of this torsion field, his Accutron watch goes out of out of sync. It, it, it's, it doesn't vibrate. There's a tuning. There's a tuning fork in in the Accutron watch, which is um, designed to vibrate at precisely 360 hertz, and he shows that uh, at certain times and in certain places, the watch to vibrates at either more or less of a frequency than that. So basically, the the watch itself has a tuning fork that's supposed to tu- or vibrate at 360 hertz, 360 times a second, and basically objects vibrate based on their their mass, I think, and um, other properties about them. And so he's he seems to be claiming then that this tuning fork should be vibrating at 360 hertz, and when it doesn't, that's somehow a manifestation of hyperdimensional physics? Yes, the claim is that this torsion field um, can change the inertia of any mass that it passes through. It gets a little complicated because he says that if the, the if the tuning fork is aligned parallel to the axis of rotation, and by the way, by rotation, we're talking about the rotation of heavenly bodies like planets and stars. If if the tuning fork is aligned with parallel with the axis of rotation, then the inertia will increase. But if it's uh, ninety degrees to that, the inertia will decrease. So if he basically holds it on a north-south line versus up and down relative to the equator? Yes, well, not necessarily that. But you see, the thing is, uh, Stuart, he, in, 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 in posting information about the results of these experiments, he doesn't say what, what direction the tuning fork is in. He's never, he's never stated that. He has never given... Uh, what we, one would call in, in science, one would call a baseline. Okay. In other words, we don't know whether his watch normally functions correctly. It's a it's a it's a forty year old watch. You know, the last time that that an Accutron watch was made was nineteen seventy six. So it's, it's like it's at least forty years old. It may be even older than that. Mm-hmm. We don't know whether his watch normally functions accurately and keeps steady at 360. All he has shown us is that he can, he can record spikes of, um, of, of frequency, little spiky excursions either up or down, and he doesn't make any connection numerically 
to the so-called torsion field. So for him to say that he has measured it is simply untrue. He has never stated a measurement. But he claims that he's, for example, gone to, uh, let's say, Stonehenge and gotten weird readings or that he's gone to, or not gone to, but he he measured it during the transit of Venus across the sun and gotten these weird readings. Uh, so you're basically saying that these weird readings are only measured during these times because he's only measuring them during these times, and we don't actually have any sort of trace of how his watch functions if it's just sitting on a kitchen counter during a normal day. Exactly, yes. The, his, his first experiment was the transit of Venus on the 8th of June, 2004. He went to the Coral Castle, which is in uh, Homestead, Florida. Uh-huh. And subject of even more shit of science. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, um, and he showed his trace. There was some very pronounced uh, frequency spiking up to 364.474, he, he says, at the moment of what's called third contact. That's the um, third contact of the, of the planet Venus with the edge of the sun. And if you look at that, you'll see a whole bunch of spikes, all of which were increasing on that, um, on that event. But he, again, he did not say how his his uh, tuning fork was aligned in relation to the, the spin axis. So we don't know whether it was doing what he predicted it would do. We have, there was no control, um, and it, uh, it is just junk science as far as I'm concerned. Okay, uh, so then another claim um, is just sort of this general... NASA conspiracy, and this is uh, coming from a listener uh, to the podcast. He wants to know, what are some of the origins of the NASA conspiracy? Do they originate with the Life on Mars conspiracies, or maybe with the moon landing hoax, or do they go back to Werner von Braun uh, and the Nazis that we talked about earlier? Or does the general conspiracy stuff with NASA go back even further? Well, I think so far as um, Hoagland uh, is concerned, they go back probably to the late 70s, sort of around the end of the Apollo program. <clears throat> he was asked on, on one of his radio appearances whether he had known when he was advisor to CBS Television News during the Apollo program whether he had known then that NASA was a deceptive uh, agency. And he said his answer was no. But when he was no longer working for CBS News, he very quickly found out. And he said, what shocked me most of all was that I discovered that some of what NASA does can be kept secret. Well, I had to have a good laugh at that because... As you know, Stuart, I, my career kind of paralleled uh, Hoagland's uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. I was While he was advising CBS Television News over here, I was a science producer for the BBC in London. And I may say that uh, me and my colleagues, we knew perfectly well that there were aspects of what NASA does that were classified. 
And I would say to Hoagland that if he didn't know that when he was advising CBS News, he was negligent. Every single journalist on the NASA beat knew that perfectly well. Well, and to uh, just make sure that our listeners are well aware, every government agency has classified stuff and keeps stuff from the public. So this doesn't really necessarily add anything to the mystique of NASA as a DOD thing or whatever. I remember the very first time that I walked into the astronaut office in uh, Houston. One of the things that struck me was there was a, a device right there in the in the entrance hall marked disposal of classified documents. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, that sort of set me back a bit. I thought, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Could you just open the lid and take some out? No, no. <laughs> um, well. I, I'd like to read you a bit from Dark Mission. It's not very long. Okay. Uh, and it, to, it, it, so that listeners know, Dark Mission is uh, what, his first book? No, second book. His okay. first book was The Monuments of Mars. Ah, yes, yes. All right. So Dark Mission is his second book, co-written with Mike Barra, which they claim is a New York Times bestseller, although I think you've done a little bit of research on that, and it's actually not a New York Times bestseller. It, well, it missed it by one ranking point, so. All right. Still plenty to be proud of, I must true, say. True, um, I've written books myself, and I'd be very happy if any of my books had gone that high. <laughs> anyway, this is at the end of Chapter 2, which is all about hyperdimensional physics, and he's essentially talking about his relationship with NASA. And he, he, he refers to himself in the, in the third person. Hoagland, who at one time was warmly embraced by various NASA facilities and programs, suddenly found himself on the outs with those same institutions when he pressed the issue of the tetrahedral mathematics of Cydonia. His ideas were welcomed, it seemed, as long as there was no real means of proving his hypothesis. It was only when he ventured into the realm of hyperdimensional physics and sought for it the same status as any other testable theory that NASA suddenly decided it would no longer lend an ear to his ideas. It was at this point, as we entered the 1990s, that we began to suspect there was something seriously wrong with this picture. And that's the end of his chapter two, and so it's pretty obvious that NASA people got fed up with him going on about this uh, hyperdimensional physics nonsense and about the measurements at Cydonia, which you mentioned a bit earlier, mm -hmm. because it's not of any interest to them. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's just not science. Right, and actually he claimed that he was censored at, I think it was the launch of uh, Pathfinder back in the 90s, um, where... He was at the launch, and he was trying to show posters of the face on Mars, and a NASA person came up to him and shoot him away, and he went on coast and ranted about it. That was the launch of Mars Global Surveyor in November, oh, okay. November 1996. Yes, indeed, he misbehaved, and he was denied press accreditation for the Mars Pathfinder launch, which was one month later. Okay. And in denying, the uh, head of NASA Public Relations uh, wrote to him, advocacy organizations are not permitted to post signs in the KFC <laughs> press building. 
they they suggested that he might position himself at the badging center outside the press center and invite members of the press to come and talk to him there. Yes, he was furious. <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, okay, uh, so basically the NASA conspiracy for Hoagland, at least, dates back to the late 70s, as far as we can tell. Yeah, and um, all of that face-on-Mars stuff, uh, the, and the, the cat box, remember? Mm-hmm. Mars Global Surveyor. Uh, somewhat uh, as a result of Hogan's uh, letter-writing campaign, Mars Global Surveyor re-imaged the so-called face on Mars. Uh, But it was uh, an unfortunate moment because there was uh, dense fog over over the whole of Cydonia and the resulting... Well, a dust storm. The resulting image was, was very, very, very low contrast. Yeah. Okay, uh, so the next question, uh, this is a write-in from Steve B. from the UK, uh, also Yorkshire Pud on uh, the Coast Gab Forum, which is a forum for people who like what Coast to Coast AM used to be or could be, but really hate the direction it's gone lately. Uh, So a little plug for that. Um, He writes, What do you think about getting into a live, televised debate with Richard Hoagland or Mike Barra on a mainstream show such as something on CNN? Clearly something on Coast to Coast likely won't happen, and as a little bit of a follow-up, no, this has not happened yet. I'm still waiting for a response from George Norrie to get me on. Uh, But he goes on, um, especially since Mike Barra, last time he was on, explicitly stated that he would never listen to someone like me, me being me as in Stuart. But do you think that anything could be begotten from perhaps a real moderated debate between either Richard Hoagland or Mike Barra and yourself? Hello, Yorkshire Pud. I can do a Yorkshire accent very well, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate your question. Um, I would take on Mike Barra. There would have to be a, a sensible moderator. As for Hoagland, I don't know. I'd be very cautious. He's um, first of all, he he cheats in these debates, and secondly, he is in fact very quick on his feet in uh, in, in debating tactics. If you if you look at the transcript of the debate between him and uh, Ed Mitchell, mm-hmm. he he cheats by simply blathering on. And take, taking up eighty percent of the of the time allocated, and leaving no time at all for his opponent. And uh, and secondly, he's he's very he's very I I've got to admire him, in terms of debating tactics. He thinks very very quickly. Yes, uh, that that's true, uh, and I I agree with that. That Richard would probably be a hard person to quote-unquote beat in a debate just because, well, A, with his familiarity with his claims over the past 30, 40 years, but also because he is very good at going back and forth and twisting words to mean something else. Like, he'll ask, for example, do you really think that there are no conspiracies at NASA, that there isn't anything hidden? And it's like, well, you have to admit, if you're being intellectually honest, well, yes, of course, there's stuff that we're not allowed to know because of classified material at NASA. And then he goes, well, then couldn't blah, 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 that he thinks be true. And it's like, well, that's not what I said. But to the audience, it's going to seem like that's what you said. 
But why then would you agree, for example, to debate Mike Barra as opposed to Richard Hoagland? Uh, yeah, because Mike does is not, is not quite as good. He's um, he doesn't he doesn't think nearly as quickly. Um, he doesn't know as much, and um, I'd, I'd be happy to take him on. Uh, actually, so would I, uh, for pretty much the same reasons. And Mike's uh, debate tactics, if they're anything like his tactics online, are simply to insult you. That's right. He doesn't actually refute with any information. He just calls you a moron or a homo. And exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay, well then. A douchebag is his favorite. Oh, yeah, douchebag. That's... I, I wonder whether Mike has actually ever seen a douchebag. I don't think anybody uses them anymore, do they? Uh, that's a subject for some other type of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we're getting actually close to uh, the hour mark, so I'd like to end this with more of a discussion question. Um, and. I, I think this will be uh, not necessarily just a question for you, but a little bit of a discussion maybe between you and myself. Uh, so this comes from Ziznak, who is also from the Coast Gab Forum, and I've paraphrased his question uh, due to language issues. He asks, what is the end game with Hoagland? What would have to happen for you, and for me, to finally say, gotcha, and walk off into the sunset? I mean, would it need to be... Uh, something like public humiliation, which probably wouldn't be because he's been publicly humiliated. Uh, would it need to be a lawsuit? Would it need to be some ironclad piece of evidence? Or, or what would the end game actually be? Well, I think I've thought about this since you, um, you, you warned me that this question was going to come up. I think in the case of Mike Barra, he'd just have to, he'd just have to shut up, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, his... Um, his reasoning is so faulty. Pretty, pretty well everything that he says and writes is wrong. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and he just will have to shut up. As long as he keeps posting things that are not true and saying things that are not true, I am going to carry on criticizing him, quite honestly. As far as Hoagland is concerned, I don't know. I think if he, um, if he completely revamped that horrible website... <laughs> and he took out all of the technical errors in it. And if he admitted that his Egyptian stuff was absolute rubbish, then I think that might be good enough. So basically for Hoagland, you're saying that he would need to recant, and that would be the, the end game moment for you with him, but that as long as he's going to keep on saying this stuff, you're going to keep at him as well. Yeah, that's right. I think um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, press for a full recantation, but perhaps either the Accutron stuff or the NASA Egyptian god worship. Well, one of the two. Well, I, I would. I would be very happy to see that, and I would probably. I would probably cool it from that point on. <laughs> for me, I think that it's more. I'm going to keep using what he says and what he's written as examples of how not to do science because I think that it's it's really good or it's a really good example of how you can seem sciency, you can seem to be doing real stuff because he makes a very good case or not case, but he makes um he sounds really good when he's saying that science is all about predictions, that science is all about numbers, it's about measurements, and that the data don't lie. And then he shows his data and says, therefore, 
there's hyperdimensional physics. And I think that using that as an example of what can go wrong when doing science, especially when lay people who may not know any better, I, I think that Richard actually does know better because he's been told many, many times how to really do this stuff. But when people who really don't know how to do it try to do science, I think that it's good examples and it's good material to show how you could fix the scientific protocol that he's using, how you could really go about doing this type of measurement. And so, for me at least, you know, even after he's dead, um, just, you know, to be, not to be morbid, but, you know, he is 30, 40 years older than I am, so probably I will outlive him. Even after he dies, I expect to still continue to use material that he's written or that he's said in order to continue to show how not to do science and where thinking can go wrong. Yes, I agree, and I particularly agree with what you said about he, he sounds good. He sounds like he's talking science. And, and in his writings, which you can read uh, lavishly yes. <laughs> on, uh, on the Enterprise Mission website, it's very he's, verbose. he's read enough technical, um, scientific, um, peer-reviewed publications to know how to write like that. And he writes very much as though he's writing for a peer-reviewed journal. Right. He, he calls his stuff a white paper. The, the buzzwords, you know, the particular expressions. And it, 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 I'm sure it fools a lot of people, but it does not fool me. <laughs> well, I don't think it fools people who actually know what they're doing. But, yeah, as you said, anyway, it will fool a lot of people um, because it sounds sciencey. And to a lot of people, if you sound sciencey, if you see that this guy was... Uh, a science advisor to Walter Cronkite, and he has dear friends like Gene Roddenberry, and you know, he keeps, it's like dear leader with Kim Jong-il, he keeps saying that you know, he's dear friends, and he names someone. Um, when people see that, I think that it, it lends this air of credibility, which simply doesn't exist when you actually read his data, and the data do speak for themselves, and it's wrong. <laughs> I'll give you a very simple example of how he simply tells lies. Um, two years ago, he said on Coast to Coast AM that the major earthquake at, at Port-au-Prince in Haiti was at um, 19.5 degrees latitude. Mm -hmm. well, well, it wasn't. It's not true. It was at 18.5. And, um, in fact, a caller had the temerity to point this out to him. He said, Richard, you're, you're not right, you know. Like, it wasn't at 19.5, it was at 18.5. And this is an example of how quick on his feet he is. He straight away said, oh, I was thinking of geodetic latitude <laughs> rather than geographic latitude. It's different, you know, because the globe is not a perfect sphere. And uh, Naturally, George Norrie didn't question that. Yeah, he probably gave one of his, oh, that's exactly right, statements. But, but, of course, that's stupid because the normally quoted latitude that we normally use in, in atlases is geodetic. Mm -hmm. it's, nothing, it's not like that geodetic is something different. The other type of uh, latitude is geocentric, which is very slightly different, but it's different in the wrong direction, actually, to make him to make what he said uh, correct. Yeah, 
All right. Uh, well, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to add to what we've talked about over the last maybe uh, 56 minutes or so? No, I think we've done very well to bring it out at just about exactly the hour. All right. Well, in that case, uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your uh, expertise, especially since you've been following this stuff for uh, a lot longer than I have and were actually there while this stuff was going on. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to um, put my point of view and state a few facts. Facts are nice, good things, useful things. Um, so, um, with that in mind, uh, thanks, and people can follow you at your blog, which is called again... The Emoluments of Mars. All right, and we'll have a link up to that on the show notes of the podcast. And uh, with that said, thanks. Talk with you later. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks again to Expat for coming on and sharing his expertise with us on this subject matter. I actually learned quite a bit during this interview. In terms of new news this episode, I forgot to mention from last episode that just about a week or so after I released my podcast on the Schumann Resonance, I got a flurry of emails, tweets, and Facebook messages the following Tuesday that Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast had just released his own episode on the Schumann Resonance. As usual, he takes a slightly different approach than I did, and I do recommend listening to it for an additional perspective. He had some interesting points on some of the more so-called alternative medicine claims about the Schumann Resonance. In terms of the rest of the other segments, such as Q&A, Puzzler, and Feedback, they will return with the next episode of this podcast for April 1st. Upcoming episodes, in no particular order, include The True Color of Mars, The Ringmakers of Saturn, 2012 Doomsday Revisited, A Young Earth Creationist Suing NASA, and a Nancy Leader clip show along with many, many other topics. So thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. That wraps up this topic for the 68th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1. The feedback form on the website. 2. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. 3. Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. 4. Leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. 5. Leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. 6. Or or 6. Send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback even if it takes me a year or so to respond. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also tell your friends and family and two random people that you'll never meet in real life.